0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Our text this morning is the first 2 verses of 1 Thessalonians 2. So as you're finding your place there, let's all stand together. Let's all stand together. And we'll read these two verses and then ask as we as we always do, ask the Lord to help us as we consider his word. 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we love your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have united us together in these loves, that we, we enjoy opening the scriptures together each week. We thank you, Father, that even in our separation, we are able to do this. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would unite our hearts as we study this morning, that he would work in this place and that he would work in our homes through the word that we're studying together. That we would have a a renewed sense of purpose in our ministry, a renewed conviction that that ministry must be gospel-focused, and a renewed determination to stay the course with that gospel, no matter what opposition presents itself to us. We pray, Father, that this time would be fruitful in our hearts, and that our ministries would be fruitful as a result. We pray all of this boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. over, Over the years, some of us, in order to save money, have turned to YouTube University to to fix our own cars or to repair our own homes. And uh, one thing that I've learned over the years is that there are a couple of things that are crucial before beginning any repair. And so first, it's essential to know the nature of the problem, that is, you have to know your objective. And second, you have to know what tool or tools you need in order to, to do the job. Frequently, there's only one tool that can do what you need to do. If you misunderstand either one of those things, the objective or the right tool, well, you you might as well have called a professional to begin with. So if you have an oil leak in your vehicle, you've got to determine what is the cause of the oil leak. So if eventually you determine you've got a bad crank seal, that crank seal needs to be be changed. You gotta determine what tool do I need? Well, there's only one tool. You have to have a a crank pulley tool. You're going to have to rent that. Nobody has one of those. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. You've got to know what you're doing, and you've got to know the tool that you need to do it. And, And life as disciples of Jesus Christ requires that same conviction. We've been given a task, and in order to be faithful, we have to understand both the objective and the only tool that will accomplish that objective. The objective is to deliver saved and sanctified souls to glory for the exaltation of Christ. The only tool that can do that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. An effective ministry is built upon that gospel message. Now as we as we work through chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 over the coming weeks, we're going to find Paul doing a couple of things in this section. First of all, one of the constants in Paul's ministry is that opponents followed him wherever he went, trying to undo what he had done. And so in several of his letters, Paul writes to defend his ministry for the sake of defending the gospel, for the sake of defending the faith of the recipients. He's not so worried about his own reputation per se as he is defending the faith of those that he is writing to. And if we read through the lines here in this section, we can detect the kinds of things that have been charged against Paul by the Thessalonian Jews that we we read about in Acts 17. They were they were questioning his motives. They were saying he was in error. They were supposing that he he wanted the glory of a big name and a big ministry. And all of this can be found in the first six verses of this chapter. So Paul, as he's writing in this second chapter, he is assuring them, these things are not true that have been charged against me. But secondly, perhaps more importantly, he is simultaneously continuing the flow of thought from chapter 1. and We we can glean that from the very first word of verse 1, the word for tells us that he's explaining something that he has has just said. Back in chapter 1, Paul commended the effectiveness of the Thessalonians' ministry in Macedonia and Achaia. Remember, we have this theme of imitating imitators. Well, now in these verses in chapter 2, Paul goes into more detail about the example that he and Silas and Timothy set for the church in Thessalonica. And in a sense... The reason that the Thessalonians have been so effective is because the apostles were so effective in their ministry to the Thessalonians. In other words, our theme of imitating imitators is going to stretch on as we continue in this letter. Paul is concerned not only that the Thessalonians would not believe the Jews who are lying about him, but that they would be reminded of his ministry and that they would continue to imitate it. And we also should imitate it. As servants of Christ, you and I should be considering the question, how should we minister? We can look at Paul's example and follow it. In the first couple of verses in this passage, Paul shows us that effective ministry is founded upon the right message. We find, first of all, that the servant's objective is effective ministry. The servant's objective is effective ministry. and We're going to be very careful to define effective the way that Paul would define effective. So look again at verse 1. He writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. What does Paul mean by the clause, our coming to you was not in vain? Well, he uses similar language also in chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. So skip down there. Chapter 3, verse 5. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. See, in Paul's mind, if the Thessalonians had fallen away from the faith, his labor would have been in vain. Therefore, for for his labor to not be in vain would be for them to remain in the faith. Paul considers ministry effective if it results in souls coming to genuine, persevering, Faith. In other words, what this means is Paul cares about numbers. Some in, in Reformed circles are, are fond of saying, I'm not, I'm not really concerned with numbers, I'm not concerned with results, I just want to be faithful. And I've said that. I've been convicted as I've studied this passage this week. Paul didn't seem to think of those two things, results and faithfulness, as mutually exclusive. He wasn't of the mindset, well, I just put the gospel out there, and if the Holy Spirit does something great, and if not great, I'm not responsible for the results. If we read Paul's letters, it certainly seems like he feels responsible for the results. Now, the metric that he uses might be a little bit different than the ones we're used to. Some people are all about counting professions of faith, or they're they're all about counting baptisms. That's how they measure success or effectiveness. But look at 3.12 while you're there in chapter 3. Look at 3.12. "...May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints." That's what he wants. That's what Paul wants. He wants people to stand blameless before God at the coming of Christ. And we find the same thing over in chapter 5. Flip over to chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul here in these two places is talking about our glorification. That is, When we see Christ and His coming and are finally, completely sanctified, we're given perfect bodies and we're prepared for eternity with Him, our glorification. See, Paul wasn't so interested in conversion numbers or baptism numbers, he was looking for glorification numbers. He wanted to see as many people as possible persevere in the faith and stand holy before God the Father at the coming of Christ. And that desire is why we have so many of Paul's letters, including this one. If Paul was only concerned about conversions, well, he could just burn through a town to get those those decisions and move on, never looking back. But But he is fearful that false teachers will cause these these new converts to fall away. And so he writes letters to further establish them in the faith. He wants to establish them in the faith so that they persevere. That's effective ministry to Paul. Seeing people cross the finish line. And so he labored to see people come to Christ, grow in Christ, and wait for Christ until he comes. He just dreaded the possibility that his labor would not result in more souls knowing and enjoying Jesus forever that's the objective that's the objective effective ministry defined as seeing people to the cross line, to the finish line lost people saved save people sanctified, and remaining in the faith until the coming of Christ. That, that is what we've been tasked with. That's what Paul wants to see. That's what he considers effective ministry. Anything less will be ministry in vain. Now, what is the tool that will accomplish that task? There's only one. And it leads us to our second point this morning. Servants, the servant's conviction is that only the gospel saves. Only The gospel saves. And by saves, we mean the totality of our salvation. Everything from conversion to glorification. Look with me now at at verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Verses 1 and 2 are, are set up as, as a contrast. Our coming to you was not in vain, but we had boldness to share the gospel. And what it shows is that ultimately why the, the apostles' ministry was effective is that they used the right message. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they had the right tool. Their ministry was effective. It wasn't in vain because they had the right Message. Presenting souls blameless before the Father at the coming of Jesus Christ. That is the most difficult project conceivable. And there is only one tool that can manage it. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul's ministry philosophy was so, so simple. 1 Corinthians 2:2. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And anyone who thinks that another tool will do misunderstands the task. Please please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Paul does a great job of displaying just how difficult is the task. Beginning in Romans chapter 1, all mankind is in dire eternal straits. Romans chapter 1. Beginning of verse 18, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We, we all are descended from Adam, and therefore we're all born rebels. We're all sinners. Paul, Paul talks about this in Romans 3 and Romans 5. So here in verse 18, he's telling us We naturally suppress the truth. We don't want the truth. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. It's not that the truth is is completely hidden from us. Verse 20, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that... They are without excuse. Man is without excuse. Without excuse for what? Well, he tells us in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. That is, they did not worship Him or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What Paul is saying, teaching is that man, because of his rejection of God, man is now dis, dis, disordered in his affections and thinking. He can't love as he should. He can't love the things that he should. He, he can't think as he should. And he is willful in this. Verse 22, "...claiming to be wise, they became fools." In exchange, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So in rejecting God, our lives have become filled with false worship. And the following verses show that as a form of temporal judgment, God just gives us over to this false worship. And and our worship of false gods leads us Only to misery. We're enslaved to sinful impulses and rebellious desires. Finally, we see in verse 29 they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And when Paul mentions our deserving to die there in that last verse, He means eternal death. He's referring back to the wrath that he mentioned in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven upon us because of this rebellion. Hell awaits us because of our rebellion. Now, what tool are you going to use against that? And remember, the task isn't just overcoming wrath. But the task is presenting souls Holy and blameless before God at the return of Christ. How are you going to do that? You're going to build people's self esteem? You're going to medicate people? You're going to preach a particular political philosophy? Because those tools don't work. I mean, the problem is still going to stand. There's one tool, there's one tool that saves from the wrath to come. There is one tool that transforms sinners into saints. Look at verse 16. Go back up to verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. What needs to happen in order for someone to be glorified, to stand before God on the last day? What needs to happen? They need to be righteous. They need to be righteous. Well... That's exactly what the gospel does. Look look at verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through Christ to give sinners His righteousness by faith. Now turn over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21. Romans 3.21 But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Jesus died as a propitiation, that is, as a substitute to satisfy the wrath of God for our sin. And by faith... Now we're moving into Romans chapter 4. By faith, we are justified in Christ. That means we're declared righteous because He paid for our sin and we wear His righteousness before God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want an effective ministry. That is, you want to see people stand blameless before God on the last day. Use the only tool that works. The Gospel. But Paul had one tool in his bag. He had one. Because it was the only one he needed. And that conviction that conviction leads to boldness. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the Gospel of God when you understand the nature of the problem and you understand that you hold the only tool that can address it, that leads to great boldness. This gospel in the hands of this God can make dead people live forever. If, if, we, if we were pressed then on the question of why we are aren't bold for the gospel. What might we say? What might we say? Think about that for a moment. We might say, we just don't want to be ostracized, if we're being honest. We just don't want to be ostracized. We, we don't be, want people to think that we're dumb. We don't want to risk relationships could I suggest to you that we're all willing to be ostracized we're all willing to tolerate people thinking we're dumb we're all willing to risk relationships we're just not willing to do it for this message we're not willing to do it for the gospel everyone has a message It's what they are most bold about. It's what they're willing to risk relationships for. They're willing to stand for it. They are known for it. And so I return to a question from last week. What is your message? And not what should be your message, but what is your message? It's a very important question. Very important question. As Christians when our actual message, the message that we champion with our lives, when it's something other than the gospel, we, we imply all the wrong things about man's problem. And we imply the wrong things about man's hope. And we actually work against the gospel. I want to I carefully preface what I'm saying. What I'm about to say, I would ask you to listen very carefully and please understand that I I I say these things from from a a place of genuine love and care for you. It it is fine to hold strong opinions on political and, and and social issues. Many of us hold our opinions on those issues because of biblical convictions. And it's fine to discourse about those things, as long as those positions are not our message, the, the, the message that we champion, the, the message about which we display our greatest boldness and therefore imply to be our hope. As long as in our discourse we don't defame the greatest and most needful message, the gospel. This, this kind of gospel defamation has been going on for years, particularly online. I'd like to address a, a recent iteration of it without implying that this is the only way to apply what has been said in this message. There, there are many ways to apply what has been said. This is, this is just one. People are fearful of of themselves or others, loved ones, contracting this virus and dying. dying. That's a legitimate concern. People are out of work. That too is a legitimate concern. People on all sides are likely motivated both by fear and love. And it's possible to talk about these things and even disagree in edifying ways. However, when we as the body of Christ, in many cases, people in a covenant relationship with one another, when we go toe-to-toe with one another in public forums over issues like this, descending into sarcastic or condescending tit-for-tat responses. We, we inadvertently deny the gospel in at least a couple of ways. First of all, our, our behavior says that the gospel isn't true. Because our, our gospel is the message of, of how God in Christ transforms sinners who formerly hated God and one another into saints who love God and one another. When in in our interactions, we have to have the last word. We we divide into packs. We we can't not respond to someone who differs or when we one-up one another in various ways. In other words, when our discourse with one another looks just like that of the world, we shout implicitly to our non-Christian friends, who are watching. We're just like you, and the gospel is nonsense. Jesus makes nothing new. Our behavior says the gospel isn't true. The gospel that elsewhere we have said is true. There's a second way that we can deny the gospel in in this kind of thing. Our our behavior says that the gospel isn't important. By by the vehemence and boldness with which we set up and defend our positions, by our our willingness and and at times seeming eagerness to treat one another with unkindness, we're shouting to the world, this is... This is what's important. This is the message I'm willing to lose relationships for. It's so important, I'm willing to lose relationships within the body of Christ. May this not be. Some of these things taking place between professing believers right now, just in my heart, I'm, I'm echoing Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Why not rather suffer wrong than defame the gospel by engaging in these disagreements so carelessly and publicly? Repentance is in order. Repentance as public as the disagreements. And again, I'm, I'm not condemning caring about these issues. Certainly not. They're prominent in our hearts right now and those are valid concerns. But still, there is something worse facing all humanity than an extremely contagious virus or unemployment. All humans who die outside of Christ spend forever in hell. There there is one message that addresses that most important danger, and it is the gospel. And we are bound together together by the blood of Christ, to make that our message. So brothers and sisters, let's be bold together with that message. And let's be willing to put it all out there for the gospel, to suffer and be be ostracized together for the gospel. Let's not contend for perishable crowns. The servant's conviction is that only the gospel saves. And finally, finally, The servant's proclamation is undeterred, undeterred by suffering and opposition. So Paul reminds the church here of his time in Philippi, which you may remember from Acts 16. He says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I'd encourage you to read Acts 16 today. I'll just remind you that Paul and Silas were there. They were beaten by a mob. mob, Then they were beaten with rods by order of the magistrates. And then they were thrown into prison. All of this without a trial even though they were Roman citizens. They, They suffered and were shamefully treated as Paul puts it. Now that kind of treatment could not prevent the apostles from continuing to spread the gospel. This is why proclaiming the gospel requires boldness. The gospel is opposed. And perhaps it would be more appropriate to say that the God of the gospel is opposed. Notice that Paul specifically calls it the God, the gospel of God in verse 2. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Man's biggest problem and his deepest impulse is his rejection of God, as we've seen in Romans 1. The last thing that that we want to hear in our fallenness is that we're responsible to God, or that our only hope is to turn to God. And so the Gospel draws the deepest of opposition upon those who proclaim it. As Paul mentions here, those who faithfully proclaim it, they can expect to suffer, to be shamefully treated, experience much conflict. And that's why it takes boldness to declare the gospel in a world bent against God. You recall that laundry list of afflictions that Paul experienced in his ministry that he outlines in 2 Corinthians 11, including things like countless beatings and often near death, five times receiving, receiving at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one, three times being beaten with rods, being stoned, being shipwrecked, adrift at sea, the list goes on and on. None of that could stop Paul from proclaiming the Gospel. And we have to ask why. Why? It would take far less to stop us, wouldn't it, if we're being honest. Why? Why? Is Paul undeterred by these things? Why would Paul care so much about souls crossing the finish line? Why would that goal push him to continue preaching the Gospel even in the face of the worst opposition imaginable this is a, this is an important question for us especially those of us who would admit man i just don't have that same kind of drive what pushes him we we'll look down at 219 1st Thessalonians 219 for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our lord jesus at his coming is it not you for you are our glory and joy. Now surely that part about a crown of boasting was a typo. But we find that kind of thing other places. Listen to Philippians 4.1. Therefore my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm in the Lord. In other words, persevere until the Lord comes. Find the same thing in 2 Corinthians 1.14. On the day of our Lord Jesus, you'll boast of us as we will boast of you. There's also Philippians 2.16. Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain Or labor in vain. Paul is motivated to stay the course in the midst of much opposition because he wants these souls to cross the finish line so that they serve as a crown of boasting for him before the Lord on the last day. And We may be a bit troubled by this, right? We may be troubled by this as if Paul just wants to be proud before the Lord at his second coming. Hey Jesus, look at all the good works that I did for you. Look at this. Aren't I awesome? Crown me. The difficulty though disappears if we interpret scripture with scripture. If we use if we use one passage to help us understand another. And I've said it before, but it, it is important to read the Bible repetitively. So beneficial to take books of the Bible and read them over and over. Take First Thessalonians and read it every day for a month. Take James then and read it every day for a month. And then do the Gospels in chunks. Read John 1-5 through 5 every day for a month. Do the whole New Testament that way and you may think, man, that's going to take forever. Well, what better do you have to do with your time? It pays dividends. Because if you, if you do that, then this thing of interpreting Scripture with Scripture, it just begins to happen automatically. Because you come to a verse like 1 Thessalonians 2.19 For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord at His coming? Is it not you? Automatically, other passages start to come to mind. You think, hey, Paul says something about boasting in Galatians 6. You turn over to Galatians 6 and you find in the 14th verse there, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You realize then that in First Thessalonians two nineteen, he isn't talking so much about boasting in himself as he is in boasting about what Jesus has done through His cross in Paul's ministry. And then you remember Revelation four, where the twenty four elders take their crowns and cast them before the throne, saying, "Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power." And then you remember First Thessalonians three eight and nine, where Paul writes to the church. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to the Lord for you for all the joy we feel for your sake before our God. And you put all of these things together and realize that these souls persevering to the end as a result of Paul's faithful ministry, they're like a crown, and yet Paul isn't interested in a crown that he can wear, but a crown that he can put at the feet of Jesus. On the last day, Paul will point to them, these souls, and he will boast not in himself, but in the cross of Christ. He'll say, Look, Jesus. Look at what you've done. Look. Look at what your cross has done. And oh, sweet and kind Jesus, thank you. Thank you for allowing me, the chief of sinners, to be an instrument in your glorious hands. Thank you. See, Paul believes the gospel. Paul loves Jesus. Paul hopes in the return of Christ. Faith, love, hope. That's what we saw at the beginning of this letter. That's what we're going to continue to see as we we move on. That's why he cares so much about this. That's why he continues in the face of opposition. He wants to see Jesus and his cross maximally glorified on the last day. And the worst thought imaginable to him is that one minute of his life wouldn't contribute to that. He doesn't want one minute of his life to be spent in vain. He loves Jesus. A true servant of Christ has that same motivation. We love Jesus. And so we want our ministry to be effective we want our labor to contribute to his maximum glory on the last day and so we give ourselves to proclaiming the only message that can do that we don't want to die and not be able to say lord jesus look at the power of your cross look at what you were able to do through somebody like me thank you and all glory be to your name what is our objective What is our message? What can deter us from speaking this message? May our objective be the glorification of souls for the exaltation of Christ. May our message be the gospel of Christ. And may all the opposition that the world can bring be insufficient to silence us. Because we love Jesus. I'm going to pray and then we will we'll spend a moment in silent reflection considering these things. Let's pray. Father, we stand before you today as souls rescued by this gospel Souls on the journey from conversion to sanctification and looking forward to glorification on the day when your son returns for us. And we we know because of our own stories that this is because of the gospel that we heard and by your grace embraced. Help us to love that gospel and the Jesus of that gospel. Help us to not ever get over the gospel to be so enamored with the Lord Jesus Christ and, and what you have done through him to save us that it it is our message. And no amount of opposition can silence us. We pray, Father, that where we need to repent, we would repent. Where we need to be encouraged, we would be encouraged. We would be reminded of the great love of Jesus for us. We would be motivated by that to love him more. And that your Holy Spirit would empower us for greater faithfulness in these things. That we would be a gospel-proclaiming church. That souls would cross the finish line for the exaltation of your Son and your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.